This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware. And this episode, there's a lot we could discuss. There have been interesting polling numbers that have come out. The Warren campaign is trying to solidify its status as potentially the front runner of this campaign. But I wanted to focus this episode and thought it would be a, a good opportunity to focus this episode on the campaign of Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Mayor Pete, as we'll discuss uh, later on in this episode, has bounced back from what was a very difficult summer and is now in a position where he's rising in the polls again in a state like Iowa. He's seems to be in the, the top three and within just points of, of leading. And he gave, his campaign is firing on all cylinders. They're operating with a lot of confidence. And so I thought this would be a good opportunity. We've talked quite a bit about Mayor Pete on the show because of the role that Faith has played in his campaign. I thought it would be a good opportunity to talk with a journalist who could walk us through the sort of narrative and the story of Mayor Pete's campaign and potentially help us get a sense of what the future might look like. And I think we've done that with our guest for this episode. We are able to have a conversation with really one of the leading reporters who has insight into Mayor Pete, given his reporting from Indiana and is now on the 2020 beat for Mayor Pete. I'm speaking of Adam Wren. Adam Wren is our guest this week, a contributing editor at Politico and Indianapolis Monthly. He's broken significant news around Mayor Pete and his campaign this cycle, and he's really making a name for himself. And fortunes may have just aligned for him here, given Mayor Pete's uh, rise. And so this episode, we go in-depth on Mayor Pete's campaign, talking not just about faith, but, but a range of issues and aspects of Mayor Pete's campaign. I'll just say, and I believe I discussed it in the interview, I was very impressed by his Liberty and Justice dinner, which is a a major event in Iowa, an event that uh, many Obama campaign staffers will tell you made uh, Barack Obama's campaign and was the springboard that launched him into a successful effort in the Iowa caucus. And then obviously in the primary, Mayor Pete's speech perhaps wasn't that revelatory. It was the only speech that night that watching it, you thought we might look back on this as a significant turning point. Other candidates put in strong efforts. I thought Elizabeth Warren did well. Cory Booker, as usual, uh, does well. Mayor Pete, his campaign clearly put a lot, not just into the speech itself, but all of the organizing around it. We talked with Adam about that and so much more. And so when we get back from this break, we'll introduce to you Uh, Adam Wren, and what's really a a wide-ranging conversation with Adam about the state of the campaign. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. 
all right to introduce our guest for this episode of Faith 2020. Uh, Our guest is Adam Wren. Adam is a contributing editor at Political Magazine and Indianapolis Monthly. Adam runs a really wonderful newsletter on Indianapolis uh, and Indiana politics called uh, Importantville that you can access just by going to importantville.substack.com. Really recommend it. And obviously with not just Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Vice President Pence, the interesting political moment Indiana is in, uh, I, I would encourage you to, to follow that. And if you're not convinced uh, just by me telling you to do that, I think you'll be convinced once you hear from Adam. Really pleased to be able to let you listen in uh, my conversation with Adam Wren. Well, I'm just so excited to have uh, my friend and really a journalist who's made a name for himself in this cycle in particular, uh, Adam Wren. Adam, it's so great to have you with us. It's great to be with you, Michael, and uh, fellow fellow dad, too, fellow first-time dad uh, as yes. well. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I think the first time we met you were in the the very early stages, and I, I, I remember uh, uh, you you telling me what what it was going to be like a little bit. So, uh, so, so yeah, it's been fun being on that journey with you uh, uh, and uh, being able to being able to learn from you a little bit. Yes, I'm here. You have been uh, covering uh, Mayor Buttigieg for a while. And so this conversation is largely going to focus on him. You just had the experience of uh, being with, I think, maybe a dozen reporters on his campaign bus over uh, over the weekend and would love to just hear, you know, given that you've spent so much time with him and covered him for so long, including, you know, his, his, uh, his time as mayor, uh, what, what did you learn from this, this time on the campaign bus? What, what stuck out to you? Absolutely. Well, I mean, for starters, any time um, that I've I've sort of covered Buttigieg since about um, April of this year has been a surreal experience. I mean, he was someone that you know I w- I could go get coffee with or breakfast in South Bend, you know, this time last year, and you know people would hardly notice. You know, it would just be sort of the two of us talking uh, for a profile, or you know, we went on a run together. And now, since April, when I've been with him, he has you know anywhere from 12 to two dozen reporters following him, you know, personal security. He was one of the first 2020 candidates um, to hire personal security for obvious reasons. And um, it's just sort of a surreal experience. And it all sort of feels to me almost like a rejected plot from like a parks and recreation episode where, where the the fourth, uh, the mayor of the fourth largest city in Indiana is now like, essentially a front runner in the Iowa caucuses for next year. So that part of it is, is really all jarring and fascinating to me. But on the bus tour, I think what was most interesting is, you know, the bus tour was sort of designed to capitalize on any momentum that he uh, received from the LJ dinner in Iowa. Uh, and we can talk about that speech if you'd like to. But um, he had a two-day tour through mostly rural parts of northern Iowa. And really... Um, during his speech, news broke from Showtime's The Circus, John Heilman, that Buttigieg, in an, in an upcoming interview, essentially described the primary as a two-way race between he and Elizabeth Warren, uh, which many sort of interpreted candidates as well, interpreted as presumptuous. 
And the first question that he was asked on the bus tour and his first response was really to walk back those candidates, uh, walk back those comments rather uh, about Warren and about being a two-way race. And really he spent a lot of time on the bus sort of uh, refusing to play pundit, uh, which I think is interesting because he, as a former consultant for McKinsey, sort of has like that built-in, um, I think, uh, wiring where he gets outside of himself and see, you know, sort of talks about the race um, almost as a third-party pundit might talk about it. And um, he was very cautious the rest of the bus tour to avoid commenting on other campaigns. Um, but really sort of the subtext of the entire trip, including his town halls that he did, was essentially to contrast himself with Warren. And it was almost like no other candidate in the primary existed. Yeah. yeah. It, so you you just raised a, a couple of things I want to discuss a, a bit further uh, first is his uh, his reference that this is becoming a two person race, which I think he's he, he he was happy to walk walk it back once the idea was out there. And and you know, frankly, from a strategic perspective, I think it was pretty wise to at least plant the idea uh, in, in folks folks' minds. Uh, uh, but but first, I want to ask you about the LJ dinner. So. For folks who don't know, this used to be the Jefferson Jackson Day Dinner. It's now been renamed the Liberty and Justice Dinner. It is one of the hallmark uh, events of the entire primary caucus season, and it has made candidacies before. If you talk to uh, Obama folks, they'll say that it was Barack Obama's uh, J.J. Dinner speech uh, in 2007, that really set up his Iowa caucus win, which set up, uh, you know, his 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 uh, his ability to win the nomination. I, I have to say, I think some some other candidates performed performed well. I thought Booker performed well. I thought Warren performed well. Buttigieg's speech was the only one that I saw that, watching it, you thought this could be a turning point. It was not just. Uh, he introduced some new ideas in that speech. It was clearly the the most uh, comprehensive uh, statement of the case for his candidacy. But then also, I thought just the organization uh, of his campaign and the way they delivered in the atmospherics of uh, of the LJ dinner was was pretty profound. Uh, Adam, you mentioned to me that. And you kind of alluded to it uh, already in this interview. His team felt pretty confident that they had something special for the LJ dinner. Can you just talk a little bit about sort of their confidence going uh, going into the LJ dinner and, and what you think were the, uh, the the key aspects of his speech that you think might drive his message through uh, through Iowa? Yeah, absolutely. So you you kind of had a sense as sort of a, a being on the Pete beat, as I call it, that. Uh, this speech was going to be something that they were planning around, were messaging around. They sort of ramped up expectations for the speech all week long. Um, there was uh, an email that went out from the campaign uh, from one of his senior advisors, uh, Larry uh, Grizzolano, uh, who uh, you may know from the, the Barack Obama, ba- Obama campaign, AKP, uh, AKP message and media for Obama 2008. Um, and, you know, he essentially was comparing 
Buttigieg to Obama before the speech even happened on Friday uh, in messaging that week for the campaign. Um, and there were sort of illusions that it was going to be a big, uh, a big deal. And of course, come Friday, uh, Buttigieg had a pre-rally before the actual speech uh, outside in D- downtown Des Moines, where uh, I think 2,300 supporters uh, rallied for him out in the rain. And he had Ben Harper, the musician, sort of play a mini concert. Um, and so you knew from that organization effort that it was going to be a big deal. Yeah, so there was a bit of controversy from some of the rival campaigns uh, and, and reports and outlets like BuzzFeed that of the 2,300 or so people who Buttigieg had uh, at the rally before the, J, uh, the LJ dinner and at the actual LJ dinner, that these people were out of state. Um, there's a group called Barnstormers Repeat, and they traveled into the state and, and were there for, for the speech. Uh, but regardless, uh, you know, even if they did come out of the state, I think the, the, the campaign's ability to organize um, was really, you know, fascinating and clearly drew attention from other campaigns, in, including the Warren campaign. Um, he had really the largest crowd of the cycle in Iowa uh, on Friday before the actual dinner uh, with about 2,300 people there. Uh, it, it, it was it was. An impressive, uh, impressive showing. Um, uh, let's talk about the other piece I, I, I mentioned, which is this sort of this sort of focus on Warren and him uh, telling Axios that he thought um, uh, that he he saw the race shaping up that way. Or I'm sorry, was that was that Axios or was that um, uh, the circus? Yeah, it was the circus, John. Yeah, sorry that every premium. <laughs> cable station now has their own news news program. Uh, uh, so, uh, so apologies to Showtime and, uh, and 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 those guys. He told them he saw it becoming a two person race. It, it, is this as simple as he sees himself as sort of being able to take the? Um, he sees Biden as sort of inevitably declining, and and he thinks he could take the sort of moderate lane in this race. And and if so. Uh, do you think that was always his plan, or there have been some people who have looked at his campaign and and said, you know, it seemed early on that he was he was running um, a different campaign, but now sees an opportunity in in the in the moderate lane, and so has sort of adjusted appropriately. Yeah, you know, um, I think that it's sort of both in on that. Um, what's what's fascinating is that a lot of the negative reaction to Buttigieg's comments about it being a two-way race uh, weren't, even from other candidates, weren't so much that he was wrong, uh, but that it was was impolitic to say uh, David Axelrod is someone who is very uh, close to Buttigieg and has become something of of a mentor, but also isn't afraid of sort of dinging or criticizing him on Twitter when, when the moment is appropriate. And, you know, Axelrod, when those comments came out quickly, sort of poo-pooed them uh, because it was, you know, it was him playing uh, consultant, him playing pundit, but not, you know, he didn't actually say that he was wrong. So I think, yeah, Buttigieg, right. yeah, I think Buttigieg, when he made those comments, was sort of looking, you know, a month out from now and you know, really seeing the implosion of Biden, particularly in Iowa. Um you know, a new uh, Quinnipiac poll released, uh, you know, as we're talking, uh, has Buttigieg in second place in Iowa behind uh, Warren and, and not too far behind Warren. And uh, Biden is in fourth. 
So he really sees um, that uh, he can get this so-called uh, wine lane of voters. So you've got you know the wine track, beer track, um, and he's really contending um, for sort of uh, educated uh, liberal Democrats in Iowa with Warren. And his sort of case of the matter is that he can get to Warren's right and sort of criticize her on Medicare for all uh, and kind of go to, to her right on other spending proposals um, and, um, you know, sort of out Biden, Biden, so to speak. And he seems to be doing it, um, uh, you know, particularly in Iowa more than anywhere else. Um, Bloomberg, Bloomberg had a story uh, recently, you know, showing that Biden's state director in Iowa actually lives in Chicago, doesn't live in the state. Um, Buttigieg is really making, you know, on the bus trip, you could really see, you would go to some of these small towns and people there would say, you know, we haven't seen a presidential candidate since 2008, 2012 come through here. And it means a lot that he's here. And these are, you know, red counties. Uh, I mean, we spent most of the bus tour in Kings District. Um, and Buttigieg, you know, drew crowds of 1,000, you know, 700, 500 people um, on the weekend, but also like in the middle of a Monday morning, a, a Monday afternoon. So um, he's really sort of biting into Biden and in, in some ways uh, Bernie Sanders' uh, uh, lead, which was particularly fascinating because when Buttigieg was a high schooler, he wrote this essay uh, sort of idolizing um, Sanders. And now he's sort of, you know, contending with him for his, his voters. So uh, it's really yeah. So, 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 Adam, what's maybe most interesting to to me about this moment for for Mayor Pete is there have been other candidates who have had a moment and then were sort of knocked down and just were unable to get up. So you think of uh, of Beto, who just had to drop out, but he was. He was polling third in national polling when he jumped in, high double digits. He was raising a bunch of money. You also think, you know, we'll, we'll see. I don't think it's over for Senator Harris yet, but, but she similarly, you know, had a rise. And as soon as sort of media attention and uh, her opponent's attention sort of was trained on her, she, she, she lost her footing and hasn't recovered, you know, in months, uh, Mayor Pete similarly, you know, was in the, in the second tier was, was seen as a viable candidate and then had in July and early August, in part because of issues back home, uh, there were people who were, I mean, there were, there were many articles that were questioning whether he was going to have to drop out of the race entirely. Um, And yet he sort of, stayed in it. He spent some time back home and addressed issues around police and community issues, police violence in in South Bend and equity issues. And, and now he's where he is now, which is, you know, competing for a top top finish in Iowa at this point and and in at least conversations about being a first-tier candidate. Um though on the church politics podcast this this week, I think Justin uh, Gibbony, my my co-host on that podcast, uh, said, it, you know, Mayor Pete may not be in the first tier, but he's the only candidate in the second tier right now, um, which I thought was was a pretty apt way of of putting it. And so, just uh, before we, uh, there are a couple more issues, more specific issues I want to get to, but 
Talk to me a little bit about that difficult political season that Mayor Pete had. And uh, like, did you think it was the end for him in July? And and have you been surprised by his endurance when he is the probably the least uh, experienced politician, especially on the national stage of, of really any of the candidates still in the race with the exception of Andrew Yang? Yeah, that's a great question, Michael. Um, and as it turns out, I was on vacation uh, in Holland, Michigan, where my wife is from, just off Lake Michigan uh, in, in June when the um, police action shooting happened in South Bend and, um, and you know, got emails and calls from my editor at Politico magazine saying, you know, can you get to South Bend? Um, and which was just, you know, a couple hours uh, south uh, and, you know, can you get there and see what's happening on the ground? Uh, because this escalated pretty quickly. And that was a pretty dark week uh, for not only South Bend, but but for uh, Mayor Buttigieg. Um, uh, I, I mean, he uh, had this uh, sort of town hall that was broadcast on CNN for, you know, an hour. Uh, it was dr- dramatic. Um you know, you had these visuals of African-American South Benders sort of yelling at him, criticizing him. And, you know, afterwards in a gaggle with reporters, uh, you know, he he uh, got emotional um, about what had happened to his city. And so it, it really felt at times like he was going to have to drop out of the race uh, to me, uh, to me at least. But in a lot of ways, if you think about it from a 30,000 foot perspective, if it was going to happen, it actually happened at an opportune time uh, when voters weren't exactly dialed in um, on the race. Um, even though the race has carried a lot of interest for a long period of time, you know, it was right. June. People were getting right, ready right. to go on vacation, and so in retrospect, I think if it if it had happened, you know, now um, it would have been a yeah. Um, but, you know, I was, I think, the first reporter nationally to, to report that, uh, you know, the South Bend uh, Police Department had declined in diversity under his tenure. Um, and, you know, I think he sort of, uh, for better or worse, has to answer because of this crisis for his standing with African-American candidates in a way that someone like, say, Elizabeth Warren or even to a certain extent, you know, Cory Booker, haven't had, haven't been asked, um, even though they are in some ways, you know, struggling with African-American voters as well. I think Elizabeth Warren is at 12%. And I think Buttigieg, last I looked, was at 2%. Um, but he really is sort of um, an unknown quantity among African-American voters. And sort of the way that his campaign, it, you know, explains the issue is that, look, if he does well in Iowa, in the same way that uh, Barack Obama uh, does well, did well in Iowa, you know that really is sort of a stamp of approval that voters in places like South Carolina will uh, will follow. Um, you know they'll they'll follow uh, because I think in some ways Obama, even though he is an African American, I think he at the same time in this in the cycle, but in two thousand and eight, two thousand and seven, was struggling with with African American voters. But once Iowa put their stamp of approval on his campaign. You know, I think his standing with with African Americans sort of went up, and so they're betting that that's the same thing that's going to happen if he can perform well in Iowa. You know, it's still an open question. But you mentioned it, sort of his political athleticism, and that's something that I asked him about on the bus trip because 
you know, in 2010, he ran for um, auditor in Indiana, uh, treasurer actually is the office, and, you know, was blown out of the water by a candidate uh, named Richard Murdoch, who you mm. may recall uh, right. made, uh, made you know, comments about um, God intending, you know, incest or rape. Um, and as it turns out at the time was being represented by Kellyanne Conway. Um, so it's interesting how everything sort of comes full circle, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Buttigieg lost, um, to Murdoch who, who was not seen as a, you know, uh, a powerful Republican in, in, in Indiana at the time. And, you know, from that moment until now in nine short years, he's really sort of become a remarkable, politician, whether you disagree with him or not on policy, just as uh, political athleticism is something that's been noted, I think, by members of both parties. Um, and so I asked him, like, how, how did that develop so quickly for you? Um, and I, I uh, you know, when I first profiled him um, for Politico magazine, um, I, you know, one of the questions that I asked his campaign manager is, where did this come from? And his campaign manager told me a story about how Back in 2012, and even uh, his first campaign for mayor in South Bend, and also his, his first campaign for statewide office, that when Buttigieg would get into a room somewhere in Indiana for a rubber chicken dinner, his campaign manager, who is still his campaign manager today, uh, Mike Schmuel, would essentially say, you need to go around this room and shake every person's hand before I'm going to let you sit down and eat. Uh, because Buttigieg was such a, an introvert. Um, and such a cerebral candidate. And so in a really short period of, of time, um, and I think the mayor's office is what he said has shaped him and, and made him more sort of outgoing. Uh, he's been able to develop um, these political um, impulses and muscles uh, that are really sort of right. remarkable um, for his age, you know, at 37. Let, let's move. I, I, well, actually, since you already brought it up, uh, I do want to, this narrative around Mayor Pete and uh, the African-American vote has really dominated his campaign. I saw him ask the question yet again, like why, what he needs to do to improve support. And it's, it's getting to the point where, uh, uh, and maybe this is just my perception, but, you know, could, I, I audibly heard a sigh before he gave the answer that he's given, you know, hundreds of times already. Um, there was an interesting twist in this narrative um, after research was leaked. Uh, the campaign denies any involvement in, in, in leaking this, but uh, to my knowledge, though, so you could correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but Joel Benenson, who, uh, was President Obama's pollster, did focus group research. And part of the his analysis of the research was that uh, Mayor Pete's sexuality was a hurdle, particularly among older Black voters. And uh, there were some stories on this. There's been some pushback both in media and from some of the other uh, presidential campaigns. I saw uh, Senator uh, Harris pushed back on this pretty strongly um, against this notion that uh, it's it's not Mayor Pete's record or his uh, lack of relationships, but uh, but but it's his sexuality that is sort of to blame. Can, can you just talk a little bit about that? How vehement was uh, the Buddha Judges campaign sort of response to, to this research being leaked and their denial of? 
that, that they had anything to, to do with it. Um, just just talk about sort of how, how the campaign has sort of navigated this, uh, this controversy that, you know, at least according to them, wasn't invited. Yeah, it's a great question. Up until uh, the bus tour, uh, Buttigieg himself had not been asked uh, about whether the campaign uh, leaked this focus group study that was done in South Carolina uh, among African Americans. Um, and his, you know, um, press advisor, uh, Liz Smith, and his national press secretary, Chris Marr, had both sort of been surrogates denying that it was their campaign. But I was um, on the bus and, and next to uh, Mayor Pete when he was asked about this again. And he, you know, looked uh, a, a reporter straight in the eye and said that his campaign had absolutely, you know, nothing to do with this leak. And there appeared to be some frustration uh, around around that leak. Um, and so I don't know who, who leaked uh, the document uh, based on my reporting. Uh, but there is, um, particularly after this bus tour, his campaign on Twitter have really been um, pushing back on this narrative that uh, he's struggling with African-Americans, uh, that he's, uh, you know, struggling particularly among Africans, Americans of faith. And I thought one of my colleagues um, from the press who is on the bus tour sort of framed the issue well uh, in a recent piece, uh, asked Ed Weasley from the New York Times, uh, you know, he, he rightly points out that among voters of faith, uh, you know, their reaction to sort of homosexuality, uh, particularly conservative uh, members of the faith, is is the same that you would see among uh, the faithful uh, in black churches. And that it's not essentially a, a black uh, reaction, a black faithful reaction to homosexuality, but it's really anybody of faith. And it just so happens that the black Americans uh, in places like South Carolina are, are more religious, um, according to surveys, than other parts of the country. Um, and so th- their campaign is actually pushing back against this narrative as well, in the same way that Harris is. Uh, and their contention is that, you know, once uh, he is able to uh, introduce himself more to black voters and perform well in Iowa, if, he, if he's able to, that that will really sort of quiet the criticism. But there is clearly some frustration uh, notable frustration from the campaign. And uh, as much as Buttigieg is sort of a stoic uh, figure, uh, you can kind of sense uh, that he might be uh, getting uh, frustrated with, with the questions as well, although um, he still sort of is, is game to, to answer them. And he got questions about it in, in, in rural Iowa uh, when I was with him on the bus tour from, from actual voters um, who you know, are, are people of faith and, and there are parts of Northern, uh, Northern Iowa where there's sort of a, um, a, a Swedish and, or Nordic influence. And so there's some liberal parts that are, that are rural as well, sort of similar to Minnesota. It's almost Minnesota and, and, and that part of Iowa. And so they're more open to it personally, but they're worried about their friends in the community and these farming communities. And so they were asking him that question a lot. Um, and more than I've ever heard him um, in these town halls in Iowa, he has been open about talking his sexuality uh, over the last few days in a way that I haven't seen him uh, do that before. Hmm. Well, I, I was uh, we're we're coming to the close of this interview, but uh, I do want to go to another subject he's been pretty open about, which is faith. Uh, it's been a leading sort of feature of his campaign, his sort of 
the, the extent to which he's talked about faith and not just his own personal faith, but sort of his uh, vision for faith. And we've talked on this podcast a great deal about it. So I'm not going to uh, sort of recap that there. My question for you is, um, as someone who's covered Mayor Pete for, for, for a while, has his focus on faith been a surprise to you? Or did you see this as a feature of his uh, public profile before he ran for president, or is this, or is this something that that is surprising to to folks in South Bend and folks who have followed him for for uh, for for you know since before he started running for president? Yeah, you know, um, I spent some time with him last October and November, uh, writing a profile for uh, Indianapolis Monthly. And, uh, I, as part of that, I went out to, uh, to dinner and, and drinks at an Irish pub in South Bend, uh, where he and his husband Chaston actually had their first date. And, you know, one of my first questions was, you know, when you go to places like Iowa, if you, if you do decide to run for the presidency, because, um, at that point he was, uh, you know, still looking at a third term for mayor in South Bend, I said, you know, how are you going to, to deal with questions about your, your, your sexuality, um, in in conservative rural places. And, you know, he immediately, I mean, this is a year ago, immediately sort of talked about, um, talked about his faith. And, um, you know, he told me, uh, I'm reading from the profile here, that there's just a, 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 there's a way to talk about his faith, uh, that actually goes back to what scripture, which scripture says, um, and he told me, uh, think about foot, foot washing. Feet are gross. And one of the enduring images of Christianity is when the divine comes to earth, he occupies himself with service in the most humbling way of who's, uh, of those who are most humble. And right now mm-hmm. in our leadership, we have the opposite. We have the idea that those in political service need to make sure that their powerful allies succeed. And it's not just, uh, it's not the Christianity that I get in church or in scripture. Um, and so this was more than a year ago at this point. And so it was sort of clear to me then that um, he was going to to make this part of his uh, appeal, and and particularly in red state America, um, and he's done that. And in Iowa, at every single stop that we went to, uh, nearly half a dozen stops, he uh, he quoted Matthew twenty five, and that really resonated uh, with voters there in, a, in an interesting way. And I think there's almost sort of an increase. Um, in the way that he's talking about his personal faith. Um, he shared with me on the bus that he gets an email uh, of scripture each morning from a spiritual advisor, and that's how he starts his day. Um, and, uh, you know, I think he's willing to talk about it more uh, in a way that he, he hasn't done so before. Um, but it was always sort of clear to me that this was going to be part of his appeal. Yeah. Well, Adam, can't tell you how much we appreciate your sort of, uh, as someone who's been close to uh, the Buttigieg campaign, who's followed it, as you said, for a a while, has that kind of history for kind of opening it up a bit for our listeners. Uh, The last question I have for you is just, what do you think is next for the Buttigieg campaign? What kind of milestones do you see ahead? Is it just a sprint to Iowa or is there something else that we should be looking for between, between now and the caucus? You know, I think, um, I think two things are, are really going to, um, be a, a big deal between now and the caucus. One is, um, 
I think that we're going to slowly start to see him have more African-American validators uh, speak on his behalf. Um, you know, already he's hired an Indiana state director, um, which is sort of remarkable because Indiana's primary is until next May. Uh, but she is, you know, African-American and has a, a lot of influence across the state of Indiana and is becoming someone, even on a national level, uh, Ariel Brandy is her name. Um, she's becoming sort of a, a surrogate for him in some ways. And so I think that we're going to see more of those types of rollouts of, of sur- surrogates at who um, are perhaps African-American. Um, I also think that um, we're going to see him uh, really kind of uh, make make a dual sort of play in New Hampshire in a way that other candidates haven't been able to do yet. Um, the co- the um, primary so far has been very Iowa-centric, and um, you, you're seeing people like Kamala Harris uh, and, and Julian Castro sort of double down on Iowa. Um, but I think Buttigieg is going to start to make a pivot where he's not only playing a lot in Iowa, but by virtue of his sheer uh, uh, campaign resources and his war chest, he's also going to start to put pressure on the other campaigns in New Hampshire um, mm-hmm. as well. Um, and, and really kind of squeeze squeeze them um, w- without their presence there. And already the next uh, four-day open press uh, bus tour that he's making is, is through New Hampshire. Um, wow. At a time. Yeah, so I think, I think that, those are two trends that we're going to see happen. Uh, but really it is a sprint towards Iowa. I think we might see them open up a few more field offices uh, in Iowa. They're leading the field right now with, I think, 21 or 22 field offices across the state. And um, – you know they're continuing to to grow their team. Uh, Buttigieg mentioned that his his headquarters is now uh, one of the largest employers in South Bend, uh, which is pretty <laughs> pretty remarkable. So um, that's that's great insight, Adam. Uh, I mean, so uh, you know, it, uh, I, I was sort of going on the idea that it seemed to me that the candidates might cede New Hampshire to to Elizabeth Warren. Uh, it would be very interesting if Buttigieg was able to force Warren to have to spend more time in New Hampshire, because I think the expectations for Warren are pretty high in New Hampshire right now, uh, yeah. that, that she has to meet meet those. Uh, and uh, it would be quite a bold move for for Buttigieg to, to try and challenge her, uh, challenge her there. And uh, I mean, c- kind of, as you said, even if he doesn't win, if he's able to put pressure uh, and uh, force Warren to spend uh, more than she'd want to in New Hampshire, then uh, then that could have long-term consequences for the rest of the race. Absolutely. And, you know, one, one thing I should add, too, is th- this is more sort of just my personal um, insight and not based on any particular piece of, of reporting. But you wonder, um, you know, we're still a ways out from the caucuses, and um, the caucuses are... Uh, you know, Iowans typically decide very, very late in the process. I mean, we're talking, you know, like the last two weeks before. So, you know, I, th- I think one possible obstacle for Mayor Pete is, you know, are we in a situation where expectations for him get so high ahead of the caucuses hmm. where, you know, a, a strong third place finish is read as, you know, even if he's close to the second and first place finishers, you know, is read as something of a, of a de- uh, of a defeat, um, so I think that's right. that's I think that's one you know peril that he'll have to navigate. But all indications, at least 
at this point in the cycle in, in mid-November uh, are that, you know, he's really peaking at, at just the right time. Yeah. Well, Adam, thank you so much. We'll uh, continue to rely on you uh, as we move through this primary and, and just appreciate you being a guest on the Faith 2020 podcast. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. And I just, I really appreciate what you do. I think faith uh, broadly in our politics and, and journalism is, is an underreported storyline of the campaign. And so I think you contribute uh, a lot to a lot to the common good. So thank you. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Talk to you soon. Glad we were able to have that conversation later this month. Of course, we have another debate that should have a fewer folks on the stage. So it'll be something of a new environment. Although it's been reported this week that Michael Bloomberg is looking at jumping in the race. He won't be able to make the debate stage in November, uh, I don't believe, uh, meaning polling especially, but he certainly has the money to shake things up. And so we'll keep an eye on those dynamics. It's also nearing time for another sort of state of the race uh, update, uh, given everything that's transpired. And we'll bring that to you in a future episode. Until we speak to you next time, Uh, My name is Michael Ware. You're listening to the Faith 2020 podcast, where we help you see 2020 more clearly through the lens of faith. Thanks for listening. Faith 2020 is produced by Pottery Studios and brought to you by the And Campaign. Learn more about the And Campaign by visiting andcampaign.org. Our producer for the show is my man, Bo York, and our guest this week was Adam Wren. I've been your host, Michael Ware. I look forward to speaking with you again on the next episode of Faith 2020. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.